what's on your reading list for winter or on your wish list for the holidays. If you're looking for Alaska authors and topics, we'll have some ideas for you today as we talk with Kotzebue author Seth Kantner about his latest book on caribou, caribou and climate change called A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou. We'll also discuss other new Alaska author releases as we head into the season of Curling Up with a Good Book today on Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Everyone is excited for the 2021-2022 school year. It's important to prepare for an active year ahead whether you play competitive sports or just enjoy being active. It's important to make your overall health a priority. So get your COVID-19 vaccine, stay active and involved, check in with friends and family, and bounce back from COVID together and make it a great year. This message sponsored by the Alaska Department of Health and Social Services. Alaska USA has been on a journey with Alaskans since their first member account was opened in 1948. They'll be with you every step of the way through the challenges of today and the hopes of tomorrow. AlaskaUSA.org. This message sponsored by Alaska USA. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. When you read a line from one of Kotzebue author Seth Kantner's books, such as this one, Fat Meat Made Us Feel Safer, from his latest tribute to Arctic life, you glimpse a connection to land and the rhythm of the seasons that many people in modern life have forgotten or misplaced in their busy routines. Many of us are hyperlinked to a constant flow of digital information, but this is vastly different from the information that flows to the eyes and ears of an Arctic hunter. Being able to take in and read that information and use it to thrive in some of the planet's harshest winter conditions means you need a PhD in off-grid survival skills. And the Dean of Remote Living is with us today. Seth Kantner grew up in a sod home along the banks of the Kobuk River and still lives in this remote location for part of the year. He also lives and works in Kotzebue, and he has written four books chronicling his family's wilderness life, his love of being out in the country, and the threat that climate change is bringing to this immense and fragile ecosystem. He's also the author of a children's book. Seth is a photographer and a commercial fisherman in addition to being a writer. And he joins us now. Hi, Seth. Good morning, Lori. Thanks so much for being on with us. Later in the program, we'll be joined by Barbara Hood with 49 Writers to learn about other new Alaska author releases for winter and holiday reading ideas. And you can also join our conversation. Have you read any of Seth Kantner's previous books or are you reading his newest release and have questions for him? Do you have new book suggestions for winter? Give us a call statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550 5508422 you can also email us talk at alaskapublic.org Seth it is so great to have you on again i know you were out of the state recently touring with your new book i believe are you and now you're back in Kotzebue, right how long have you been back oh good question i think uh <laughs> seems like a little while but i think it's been about uh, 30 hours or so 
<laughs> just back then. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we're glad we caught you at home. Seth, we've talked about your writing on a few occasions through the years, stretching back more than 15 years ago to your first book, Ordinary Wolves. That book was a novel. And as mentioned, you've written a children's story called Pup and Pokey. But your other three books are collections of your thoughts on life in the Arctic. Why did you start with fiction and then transition to nonfiction? Well, I think um, what happened with Ordinary Wolves was um, I was embarrassed to be writing it all and um, and kind of hoped nobody in Alaska would ever read it and was partially hiding be- behind the uh, pretense of fiction. <laughs> And then um, uh, probably more importantly, some of the things I wanted to say uh, wouldn't really work if you attributed them to uh, a real person with a real name. And um, So by making it fiction, I could sort of glue together events in my life and, and um, not, uh, not call it true when things didn't um, hadn't happen in that in that order, or somebody hadn't said that statement, I have a hard time with uh, nonfiction nowadays that I feel is, you know, 70% true and then called nonfiction. Does that make sense? <laughs> uh, well, I, I can think of a, a few uh, instances where that would definitely apply. So, Seth, this, your, <laughs> your, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, not to be confusing, but it was really important to write that as fiction so I could uh, shape uh, shape the story I wanted to tell. And um, I was really influenced by uh, John Steinbeck and uh, and his uh, his fictional uh, stories. And I think East of Eden is my favorite book, and it's also a, a good example of how he he kind of mixed uh, the truth and fiction. It's a very interesting example. Yeah, Steinbeck. That's uh, somebody to definitely admire the writings of. Um, Seth, this book, A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou, you arranged it into four parts, like the four seasons, with chapters within those parts. Talk about what you were trying to convey in each of these season segments and the chapters that are part memory and part current day. Well, uh, the book took eight or nine years to write and probably 30 years to photograph. And when I started, I was completely unclear on what I wanted to say with this book. And and so I kind of had to fall back on um, just my life with Caribou and, and then go from there, um, trying to understand my own connection to hunting and gathering and, and the land. And when I... Um, came to realize what I already knew, I guess, is that I'm completely tied to food and the seasons, and my life is just uh, all based on seasons, and and that was the old way, uh, the way I was raised, and, and so it made sense to um, to divide the, the book into four seasons, and then from there, filling in um, stuff that I didn't know, uh, like historical information is really important to me, but also pretty hard to write and kind of feels strange to me to do research and then write something almost as if I know it but you know obviously I wasn't living back in 1850 so that was uh, tougher to, to fill in those um, 
uh, convolutions in this book. It, it, there's a there's a lot of trails coming through this book. I didn't realize it. A thousand, to be exact. <laughs> If you're just joining us, this is Talk of Alaska, and today we're talking about uh, Seth Kantner, Kotzebue-based author Seth Kantner's latest book, his newest release. He is the author of Ordinary Wolves, Shopping for Porcupines, Swallowed by the Great Land, and his latest release is A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou. Later in the program, we'll be joined by Barbara Hood, who is with 49 Writers, and she's going to be talking about other new Alaska author releases as we head into the winter reading season and um, people are looking for holiday gift ideas. Set the opening to A Thousand Trails Home. Your writing, as always, is so crisp and visual and just transports me as good writing should. The freezing darkness, you standing outside in the silence, but experiencing the caribou moving through. Tell us about that. It sounds magical. And you also feel connected to a place that many would feel scared of or uncomfortable in, certainly out of place. How do you describe that connection to someone at a bookstore reading? Well, good. <laughs> you tell me when you figure that out. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was born and raised there along the river, and so, um, to, and, and, you know, people were the rarest animals that showed up. Um, so to a certain extent, uh, I think the trees and mice and caribou and stuff were, were my companions. And that sounds uh, kind of weird to say, but I think it's true. And um, so any time, um, like the last few years when there's no caribou, you feel this is loneliness for, uh, you know, this, this creature on the land. And then if you, you bounce back to that part you're describing, um, opposite, you know, and the, some of those falls when <clears throat> thousands of caribou are moving through just constantly. It's never a, a lack of caribou when you step outside. Um, um, it's a it's a giant feeling that, you know, it took me a while to figure out how to describe what it's like to, um, to have so many animals uh, moving past and, um, and, and also, you know, to, um, being out there, you it's not all um, magical. You know, there's a loneliness for, for people, too. Right, right, yeah. A different kind of loneliness than um, uh, people might feel in uh, in a crowded setting. It may be crowded out on the country, but it's crowded with non-human species, so it's a different kind of lonely. Seth, would you like to read some now for us uh, from your book, A Thousand Trails Home? It'd be great to have you read a passage. <clears throat> yeah, I'd be happy to. Let me read uh, just a short passage from what you're, you're talking about. Uh, you were describing there is, um, I, I used to go barefoot a lot, my brother and I did, and we'd walk out on the snow and uh, wave and then find some logs to stand on or something and warm up. And, so I had uh, stepped out that night in the dark to listen to Caribbean. <clears throat> Here we go. From the north, the night slowly fills with soft sounds, many feet moving through snow and the low, wiry brush of frozen tundra, the click of hoof tendons, an occasional grunt, and the clatter of antlers sweeping dwarf birch and alder branches. Caribou are passing in the night. Big and small herds have come through for nearly two months now. 
it's only the last three days since the river began running heavier ice that this uninterrupted line of animals has been marching east. In truth, caribou have been passing my entire life. The land is veined with their ancient trails. But something is different tonight. There's something big and dark and wild about standing barefoot on thin snow and frozen ground, hearing thousands of animals traveling through and not being able to see even one. It's exciting and humbling, shivery, and on the edge of scary, as if some huge parallel nation is on the move out under the starlight. Now my feet have frozen patches. I'm suddenly cognizant of the pinch and burn, and I hurry back towards a small yellow glow, a lone light in this world of darkness. Inside on my family's old bearskin couch, I sit and feel the twin aches of skin thawing and of love for my home, this land of caribou. Thank you so much for that. The things that you describe require so much attention and focus. The animals, excuse me, the animals, uh, different passages where you're talking about the shape, the size, the color and smell of vegetation and berries that fall brings. What do you hear from readers about this kind of wilderness detail? Do they experience themselves in nature and that's what draws them to your work? Or do they primarily access it through writing like yours? And that's sort of their their window into this. It's hard for me to judge uh, other people. I I hope both. I I hope... uh, uh, People uh, like my writing, but then also really hope people get out and, and experience uh, nature. And, um, you know, that whole argument about uh, hunting versus no hunting, I, I kind of question whether that's more important than we realize that um, hunting and gathering from the land is a connection. And um, I don't have much luck being a tourist. I know that. <laughs> do you do you worry about um, you know you write beautifully about the land and the animals and your photography is incredible, but do you worry about sort of a counter message? People looking at it and saying it's too pre- precious and you shouldn't be hunting or you know you should just leave it all alone and people shouldn't be harvesting and eating those animals. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I. Um... I think that's why I went to so much work to try to describe uh, uh, things from so many angles in this book. Is I, I wanted to defend hunting and at the same time um, um, be pretty hard on you know um, irresponsible ways of hunting. And and um, at this particular second, I can't remember whether I was uh, uh, hard on tourism too, but you know. Flying around the herd relentlessly can, uh, to take pictures is not always a good thing either. So I tried to um, uh, approach a lot of different angles and, and you know, first and foremost, uh, uh, encourage the caring. <laughs> and um, I think when you, you know, you, you uh, gather from the land and you, you like picking berries and you like uh, hunting caribou and stuff, um, you know, hopefully somewhere along the line, there's a side of you that um, you want, want to give back and, and, you know, basically just protect what you love and, and need. 
Absolutely. Uh, thank you. We are talking with Seth Kantner from Kotzebue and also his family home on the Kobuk River. Seth's new book is out. It's called A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou. He's on the line with us. Later we'll be joined by Barbara Hood with 49 Writers, and we'll talk about some other Alaska books too. But let's go to the phones for a moment. First, I'll let you know that you are welcome to join us if you'd like to call in with questions or comments, if you'd like to ask Seth about his latest release or one of his other books. Statewide, the number is 1-800-478-8255, 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. You can also email us talk at alaskapublic.org. Let's go to the phones. Stu is in Anchorage. Hello. Hey, thanks, Lori. Uh, Seth, it's an honor. Um, I uh, read Ordinary um, Shopping for Porcupine first and found it excellent. And then I read Ordinary Wolves and I was flabbergasted. Um, I think more than anybody I've ever read, you have tied Alaska together as far as a community um, I saw you take the character in Ordinary Wolves and you brought him to Anchorage and put him in a park in a homeless situation and this is coming from you know I was born and raised here I went to school with the native kids and you know got my share of outdoor time too so in a sense um, a lot of us I think are kind of in the middle in that gray area and then you brought this guy who was uh, totally Bush, totally Alaskan, and put him in a park near my house, and he starts trying to trap house cats. And this was phenomenal. Uh, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, you're tying the communities of Anchorage together, and you don't even know it, maybe. But um, I just want to say that um, I couldn't put it down, and I'm sure to read it again. And um, I, I forget, I confuse the book sometimes, or Ordinary Wolves and Shopping for Porcupine, because it's often the same story uh, in a different light. But I, I couldn't um, quite uh, believe the introduction. You had a lower 48 or write the introduction to one of those books. And as I read that, I started scratching my head saying, where are these people from? And, and then I realized uh, um, you, you might be the first big Alaskan author. Uh, as a cultural different group, um, and I think you're, stri- you're striking a note uh, for people who are from here, whether we're urban or bush, and you're tying it together in such a way that, uh, well, it has to do with the community identity, I think. It's um, really fantastic, and I All can't right. wait to read your next book. Okay, well, thanks, Stu. Uh, obviously a big fan there, Seth, so... Um... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's anything you want to say back. I greatly appreciate that in a, in a whole bunch of ways. Um, I usually tell people to read Ordinary Wolves first and hopefully not meet me and not know anything about me so they can fall into the into the story. So I'm glad that it worked uh, reading it in the other direction. And then um, one thing you said is uh, you know, probably the most important thing to me is that Everything I write, I try to bring people together, which I think is even more important in our modern uh, American society. And, and there's so much, uh, like I said before, anti-hunting or, or uh, you know, 
urban versus rural or subsistence versus sport hunting. And um, so everything I write, I, I really try to bring people together and get people to think about the fact that we're all people. And um, so I appreciate you saying that. All right. I wanted to ask about um, a line out of the book, this line. The adult males are entering a hormone haze. Soon they will be lost in it, arrogant and proud, careless and stupid, thinking only of mating and doing little to assist in this major migration to the wintering grounds. Is this an indication as to why, as you wrote just before this, that the females are the leaders of this nation? (laughs) After I finished Ordinary Wolves, I spent a year or two trying to write a... uh novel, which I still have part of it, I never finished from a, um, with a uh, female main uh, character, and um, and um, that was <laughs> probably somewhere along the line there, wishing that our uh, our country was uh, led by a, a bunch of women instead of mostly guys. Um, but anyway, so the caribou, yeah, pretty much uh, both directions and uh, most of the time the females are leading, and often those are females with calves right beside them. Um, springtime, they come back through. The females have to get snorked on an appropriate day, June 1st, for the calving, and the bulls are taking their time following, and then in the fall, kind of same, same way. I mentioned in the open uh in from chapter one it's about fat and furs and that line fat meat made us feel safer that just really stuck out i like to think of people in places like la or new york reading your book and pondering that line describe what you're conveying here regarding the importance of fat and the proper timing of when to kill a bull um so that it's not in rut and, you know, the meat is is uh, different or they're skinny in order to have the right kind of meat to survive the winter. I, I just picture you reading in, in an enormous urban place outside of Alaska and just wonder, what's going through the minds of the audience when you say things like, fat meat made us feel safer? <laughs> yeah, it's um, that's been a tough one because fat's kind of a bad word in America and then in any pack culture, um, you know, it's skinny animals, sort of a bad word. <laughs> I have uh, great fun uh, describing that uh, to people, how um, uh, how uh, you're so looked down on here in the, in the old culture anyway, if you brought home a skinny anything. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, um, I like pointing out those differences, I guess. Um, you know, it, it does go back to survival and living off the land and, and how important it used to be to, uh, you know, keep your family and dogs alive and, you know, you had to have fat. And, and so it all made sense. And then, you know, it's pretty interesting when, you know, more and more uh, uh, outside laws started showing up, like uh, August 15th is the open season for moose and, you know, and then the, the native perspective, uh, perspective of a season was, you know, when it was good, not uh, a date on the calendar. And so I, I like uh, like uh, pointing that out at least. And as uh, we move to this complicated life we live nowadays with so much convenience and electronics and stuff, I I wake up in a, a sweat at night, worrying uh, about it all falling apart. Because I guess I probably do have a pretty good perspective on 
how hard it is when you don't have all this stuff. Right. Yeah, you definitely do. Um, most most Americans, most people anywhere can't really imagine uh, what it's like to try to survive in a, a harsh landscape like the Arctic. You also describe in the book being a child, you and your brother helping your dad reload cartridges for new bullets, how important that skill was and how caribou was entwined in every aspect of your life from bedding to outdoor to door handles to sinew for sewing. You wrote caribou were the most important creatures. Is their importance based on their numbers and all of these uses from stakes to hides to hinges, or is there something else that gives them prominence above other protein sources? Um, I think um, there's a bunch of answers to that. I, I guess um, uh, the fact that their fur is so warm and light um, was really important for survival back in the day, and, and uh, you know, the hollow hair that caribou have, and and so they provided insulation for for hunters that um, other animals couldn't really provide as uh, plentiful and as warm. Um, I think the fact that animals, the caribou, come to you is important. We, uh, in my life, uh, we uh, stayed home. Hunting meant staying home usually, and <laughs> my uh, dad was pretty adamant that you know that if we we got anything, it was really, really close to home. And I remember the second caribou I got was about 100 yards or a little less from the house, and he came over with a bucket and a knife and said, why did you shoot one so far from the house? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I still laugh about it because it just was uh, part of our philosophy, I guess, don't don't waste and keep it simple and and, um, important to that life. And so caribou, you know, the fact that they, kind of flowed through uh, there along the river probably helped that too and, and a large chunk of uh, protein walking by and then potentially in the fall all, all that you know, fat that the animal carried it it all uh, worked together I do want to say one other thing that I left out of the book uh, sadly and that was um, that most of these other creatures mice are you know chewing holes in your stuff and crapping on your food and Squirrels are tearing your insulation out, and moose steps on your sled, and bear does whatever, and caribou just never seem to mess with you at all. Um, they don't even step on you when they're walking by. So there's just something amazing about the whole uh, usefulness and then um, relationship with caribou. So they're uh, uh, polite neighbors in, in addition to being a great source yeah. of protein and also a lot of other things. We had an email comment, Seth, from Roger Painter in Juno. He says, I'm a big fan. One of the things I loved in your first two books was the story of the family who walked from Utyagvik to the Kobuk with the father dying along the way. This was one of the most amazing stories about resilience and survival I've ever read. That was from Roger in Juneau. And we also have an email from John Kaufman who says, I was a teacher upriver on the Kobuk in 1974. I would like to talk with Mr. Kantner about those days. Could you please give him my email address? So I'll be sending that on to you, Seth. <laughs> oh, very good. Uh, yeah, that was a long time ago, a different day. It's fun to talk about the first TV and, and Chen Neck and Ambler and all that. And then 
talking about you grew up in a completely off-the-grid subsistence life, and you still live in this place where you grew up on the Kobuk River for part of the year. Wouldn't you prefer to live there all the time, or do you also like electricity and hot running water for part of the year? Oh, gosh, you just stepped in big quagmire there, Lauren. <laughs> I actually hear you there on my KOTV, and I I can't call in and test you when you're talking about forest fires or whatever, and so it's fun to be able to actually uh, be on the line. Um, yeah, I, I like uh, I like being there spring and fall. Um, breakups are sorry, freeze ups are very different than they used to be. It it kind of starts to freeze and then it rains and ice goes back out and it and you see the beaver uh, food piles floating by where they lost their entire bank accounts and then it tries to freeze again. And so fall used to be pretty fun with the first ice and setting nets under the ice and now it's kind of a wet mess um and i i really don't like being there i'm really lonely there's uh, nobody out on the land and a lot of those old hunters have uh, passed away and so yeah there's certain seasons that i actually would uh, prefer to be elsewhere Well, that makes sense. A little balance in your life is always good. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Kotzebue author Seth Kantner, who has a new book out called A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou. After the break, we'll also be joined by Barbara Hood, who is with the writers group 49 Writers, and we'll be talking both with Seth and Barbara about new releases for winter reading as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Elisogvik College, Alaska's only tribal college, is currently accepting applications for the spring 2022 semester. Elisogvik offers certificate and degree programs in person or distance education with small class sizes built around indigenous culture. Contact recruitment at elisogvik.edu to find out about free tuition waivers. This message brought to you by Elisogvik College, Alaska's only tribal college, building strong communities through education and training. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're talking today with Seth Kantner, the author of several books, uh, the latest of which is his new release is called A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou. He's on the line with us from Kotzebue. And also joining us now is Barbara Hood. Barbara is with the 49 Writers Writing Group, and um, she is going to talk with us about some other releases that are coming out in the mix here with our conversation with Seth. Hello, Barbara. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. 
Remind our listeners about what 49 Writers is and how this organization helps, works to help Alaska authors. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we have been around since 2010. We were founded by two Alaskan writers, Andromeda Romano-Lax and Deb Veness, uh, to provide a support community for Alaska's literary community, basically. And we do that by um, offering classes uh, to aspiring writers that are taught by writers both in, inside and out of the state. Uh, we offer an annual retreat at Tuska Day Lodge where writers can come together um, with an instructor usually of national renown, who comes and helps us learn uh, the various genres. Um, and we also offer newsletters and events throughout the year to, to bring the community together. I think a lot of us realize that writing is, um, we all benefit from learning from each other and from having a community, because writing itself can be a pretty isolating uh, experience. <laughs> so um, that's what we try to do, and, and um, it's been a great run. We're now in our 12th year. All right. And Barbara, I, I should also uh, let folks know that if you're just joining us, we're talking about books and Alaska authors. We've got author Seth Kantner on the line from Kotzebue with us talking about his new book, A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou. We also have Barbara Hood, who is with the 49 Writers Writing Group, and she is going to tell us about some other new Alaska author releases for the winter reading season. If you have questions or comments, you can call us statewide at 1-800-478-8255, 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. And I want to note here that we had an email from Lynn Spence, an Alaskan former Olympic cross-country skier, and Lynn says that there is a new coffee table book called Trail of Gold. She and about 50 other female Olympic skiers wrote it and about the 50-year struggle to get funding and recognition for the women's team. It uh, is from Pathway Books Online, so that's one book. Um, Barbara, what can you tell us about how at least some Alaska authors spent their pandemic lockdown time and what new books may be available because of that time of staying home? Well, I can tell you there's, um, I, I started with some trepidation coming up with a list. There are just quite a few very exciting uh, new publications out um, I'm not sure how much of them came about from the pandemic, but I have to think that a lot of them got pulled together and finished because people had time. Um, but many of these have been in the works for years. Um, I think another guest you had recently who just came out with a, a wonderful book uh, about McCarthy is Cold Mountain Path, Tom Kazaya's latest. Right. Tom is, a, many of you know, a journalist going back four decades here in Alaska. And um I just finished Cold Mountain Path, and it's just—it's a wonderful, meticulously researched, beautifully written, as always, powerful, um, you know, tribute basically to a place and a people during the ghost town years of McCarthy, which were from the 30s when the mine closed to the early 80s. Um, and he just digs into all kinds of archival material, and you really are caught up in it, and it's a great read. Um, also wanted to mention that one of Tom's, well, Tom's first book, has been republished by University of Alaska Press as part of its classic series, and that's The Wake of the Unseen Object, which was his collection of writings on his travels in rural Alaska nearly three decades ago. Right. I read 
I read it when it came out, and and um, now I, I I need to reread it as history because I think he was he was capturing Alaska at a, at a unique time, um, and that's just going to be a, that's a real treasure to have out again. Um, another book that's just been published about which there's quite a bit of excitement, and it's been a book in the works for ten years, is the book of Timothy by Joan Knuckles Wilson. Joan's a local Anchorage attorney who's lived here for close to thirty years, um, and it's a memoir of her search for justice after learning of her brother's childhood abuse by a trusted priest. It's just been released, and she's touring now in the lower 48, and it's receiving strong, positive reviews nationally. And I know Nancy Lord recently wrote a review in the Daily News about it. But that's a book that's um, just hot off the press. Um, Another uh, nonfiction book uh, by local Anchorage writer David Stevenson is called High Places, Sacrifices, and Mysteries. David's a wonderful writer and a mountaineer, and he was longtime is is the director of the creative writing program at UAA. Um, and I haven't read this book yet, but I am excited to read it. It's just hot off the press. Mm. Um, a book that uh, these are a few books that have come out within the last day, year and a half that I just think are worth worth paying attention to. Um, they've all been well reviewed. Um, one is Stampede by Brian Kasner, who's not an Alaskan writer. But he has strong ties to the state, and he's been up here a number of times offering classes and, and lectures. Um, and it's a new take on the Klondike Gold Rush that uh, has um, gotten good reviews. A book that is written by someone very near and dear to 49 writers um, is Kirsten Dixon's latest book called Living Within the Wild. As many will know, Kirsten is a world-renowned chef and owner of Wilderness Lodges, Tuska Bay Lodge, and Winter Lake Lodge. And her latest book is sort of steps back from the lodges themselves and just writes about what it's like to to live deep within the wild. And, of course, uh, she shares her remarkable culinary gifts with us in that book. And that came out earlier this year. Um, a couple of books that came out probably in 2020 around that time, but I'm, I'm including them because of the pandemic here. Um, Raven's Witness by Hank Lentzer, uh, which is the biography of the late Richard Nelson, who was a beloved writer and naturalist from Sitka. Um, Silence is So Deep, which was John Luther Adams, the acclaimed composer's um, memoir. With, uh, John won the Pulitzer Prize for Music in 2014, and the memoir traces his Alaskan influences. He lived in Fairbanks for nearly 40 years, um, and it's been reviewed as a generous work full of wisdom about artistic vision and its association to place. John's a remarkable artist on many levels, and so I think that book would be very exciting to anyone wants to understand, you know, the winter times and the silences, but also just how to create a and, and uh, commit to a creative life. Um, give us, give us I, another one, and then I want to. Uh, I've got a couple questions coming in for Seth too. So, sure. Okay. The last two for the nonfiction. I haven't even gotten to fiction yet. Are of bears and ballots, which is Heather Lindy's book about running for office and uh, enduring a recall petition campaign in Haines. It's just a really powerful and um, important uh, book about small-town politics. And probably one of my favorite books of the last couple of years is a book of essays by Mary Oden, from, who lives in Elchina now, called Mostly Water. She's just a, a beautiful essayist and has written a, a great collection about her times living in the North. So those are my nonfiction 
selections for now. Okay, and we'll come back to you in in a bit, Barbara, to get a a few suggestions for fiction, lovers of fiction. But Seth, I want to come back to you now. We had an email question from Kathleen in Haynes, and she said, could you ask Seth to please talk about the process of publishing A Thousand Trails Home with regard to the quality of the photos within? She says she's currently immersed in the book, and the photos say so much. And and they really are, you know, uh, Seth, you're known for your photography, and this book is really a standout of just amazing, high-quality photos. So did you have to argue about how high-quality those would be when you were getting this book published? Because that had to be expensive. Yeah, um, so it, I think that, uh, if I remember correctly, the original uh, agreement was maybe Twenty or twenty-five thousand words, and maybe a hundred photos, um, and that was just a, uh, a target. And I think it's seventy-two thousand words. So basically, I wasn't able to tell the the story simply. Um, ended up with a lot more words. Um, and then the photos, um, as far as caribou photos, I have way too many. It confuses me and boggles me, and I don't have them sorted at all. And then um, when it came time to Put it all together. Um, yeah, we argued uh, quite a lot, the publisher and I, as far as um, uh, not so much placement, but just which would be in each of those places. And um, yeah, it was tough. And and then um, all the tiny details. Uh, uh, I kind of said, "Oh, never again do I want a, a book of words and photographs. <laughs> just uh, too much work and too complicated." And um, um, and then when the proofs came from, uh, I can't remember where, Taiwan or somewhere, um, they looked terrible, and um, I was shook up and worried. And it um, turns out that doesn't make any sense to me, but they print the proofs on a different kind of paper. And anyway, the final uh, book, when it came, um, came out much better than I ever expected uh, any step of the way. I just never expected that. The words to line up quite as well, or, or the photos to look as good, and so I'm, I'm very happy with it. But along the way, it was uh, incredibly challenging. The book is divided into four parts, as we noted earlier, the four seasons. At the end of the first part, chapter six, you give practical lessons and recipes for properly cooking caribou. Who were you writing this for? Was it sort of a continuation of you pondering how your daughter, China, will use her knowledge of skinning and cutting meat in the future? You mentioned her Stanford education and her desire to live in Europe. Were you writing the cooking lesson for her, or who who are you thinking of? Well, the truth of the matter is I uh, grew up in this crazy uh, family where almost everything you did was uh, scrutinized the potential waste uh, even putting too much uh, butter on your uh, potato with a waste, we just uh, eyeballed everything in that manner. And um, um, it, it bothers me when um, people harvest caribou and then uh, waste a lot of it or, or cook it and complain about it you know, tasting bad, which all you know, leads to more waste. And, and caribou can be so great and wonderful that um, I just, you know, I... I like the idea of somebody going home with a caribou roast and, and ending up really liking it um, as opposed to sending it to a place and having it made into swizzle sticks or sausage or something. Um, 
So, yeah, and I think then that way with most uh, fish and wild meat and muskrat and all that stuff, I really value it the way it tastes without a whole bunch of additions. Uh, so I wanted people to taste it the way I do. Mm, okay. Well, I really like that, that you are sharing some, not only uh, the f- photographs and your thoughts about the importance of the land and the animals and keeping it the way that it is, but also sharing how you best like it, some of those things prepared. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Seth Kantner and Barbara Hood as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Today's program is underwritten in part by ConocoPhillips, investing in oil exploration and production and working to create economic opportunities for Alaskans. ConocoPhillips, unlocking Alaska's energy resources. If you have health insurance through Medicare, now's the time to make changes to your Part D prescription drug plan. Between now and December 7th, you can enroll in, change, or drop your prescription drug plan. Check your plan to see if you need to adjust your insurance coverage. Need help deciding which one is best for you? Call Alaska's Medicare Information Office at 907-269-3680 or toll-free 800-478-6065. This message sponsored by DHSS. Alaska USA has been on a journey with Alaskans since their first member account was opened in 1948. They'll be with you every step of the way through the challenges of today and the hopes of tomorrow. AlaskaUSA.org. This message sponsored by Alaska USA. 1-800-478-8255 is the statewide number if you'd like to call and join our conversation with author Seth Kantner. He's talking about his latest book, A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou. 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. 550-8422. You can also email talk at alaskapublic.org. We also have Barbara Hood with 49 Writers on the line with us. Barbara, give us some uh, a few suggestions for people who love fiction and are looking for new Alaska authors for their winter reading. Yeah, I think um, the fiction list is a little bit shorter, but uh, uh, Homer author Rich Chapone just published his first novel after... Uh, several several prior titles that were mostly nonfiction memoir. And the title is The Hunger of Crows, and it's billed as a thriller. Um, I haven't had a chance to finish it, but it's gotten good reviews. And Rich has a, been a, a funny guy we've all known for years, and I'm, I'm excited to read that book. Um, another book that came out late last year is by um, Lake Clark and Homer writer Anne Correy, entitled Lost Mountain. It's about a small, isolated community in Alaska threatened by a large-scale industrial mine. So it has a lot of familiarity with people. Um, It's her first work of fiction after authoring several volumes of poetry. Um, Sarah Birdsall of Telkeetna received a 2021 Willa Award for nonfiction, excuse me, for her um, fiction for her Wild Rivers, Wild Rose book. Um, A book that we'll be featuring uh, later this spring in one of our readings is by Anchorage writer Mia Hevner under Nushigak Bluff. It's been out a couple of years, but I think it's um, it's a good read. It focuses on the Bristol Bay region and is set in the early 1900s. And then finally, there's a, a young woman in Gustavus, daughter of Hank Lenford, Leanna Lenford, who just wrote her first novel as a high schooler, that, and she got it published. It's called Hold the Tide, um, and it has come out with many accolades. So 
those are some options for uh, holiday reading. Um, our co-founder, Andromeda Romana Lax, also wrote a recent novel published this year called Annie and the Wolves. Uh, based on It's a her- historical fiction based on the legendary Annie Oakley. Um, so those are, those are a few choices. Um. And I just want to make a couple of poetry selections that have come out that have been really enjoyable. Uh, Nicole Stellan O'Donnell in, is a wonderful Fairbanks writer and teacher who published Everything Never Comes Your Way this year. Um, and Don Reardon, um, author of the classic novel The Raven's Gift, published his first book of poetry late last year called Without a Paddle. Um, and there are a couple of poets who, if you Google them, they have many works that are always good and worthwhile. Vivian Faith Prescott um, out of Wrangell and Emily Wall out of Juneau. Um, I think all of those would be good choices. Well, Barbara, thank you so much. Uh, I, when you were mentioning Don Reardon's book, we had him read from that and, and actually put it to music. It was quite nice. And so yeah, <laughs> it was uh, was beautiful. Thank you so much for those suggestions. And uh, Seth, going back to you now, um, we're talking about new books and how they get noticed. And you had said that you had no idea if anyone east of Montana knows about your book. So talk a little bit about the difficulty in promoting new works, both in terms of all the other books and media distractions that are out there now, and also in terms of your subject matter. The book, as we've said repeatedly, is beautiful in rich photography and writing. But do you find that people outside of the Arctic, and especially outside of Alaska, have a hard time relating to your life that sort of seems like it's out of the 1800s? Yeah, funny. Um, before I answer your question, I wanted to say that um, Nicole uh, Ellen O'Donnell uh, gave me her her new book of poetry when I was in Portland, and uh, I've been I've been enjoying it. it. The title's "Everything Never Comes Your Way," which Barbara just said. But the funny thing is, uh, she gave me her previous book, which my memory is called "Steam Laundry," and I I took it up river when I was building a cabin and uh, cold and alone and Things upcoming, and that was the only book I had. So I, I'm not much of a reader of poetry, but I've enjoyed, enjoyed her, her work. And um, anyway, back to your question. Yeah, it's uh, it's real confusing for me. The uh, uh, I feel like I, I wrote a book that is uh, sort of addresses climate change and connection to nature, but then I sort of bump into all these dichotomies of. Uh, I have to leave nature to <laughs> promote my book, and my book's sort of about um, not selling yourself, and I have to sell my book to get that message out, and it's just um, uh, very confusing to me, I guess. And then, um, and and I never know how how do you get a hold of NPR and who's who sees my Facebook posts, and, and uh, there's a lot of talk now. To, you post at a certain time, you reach more people, and it's all... <laughs> yes, you have to know the algorithms. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have to get on Instagram, and I can hardly say Instagram without including a word you don't want on the radio. And, um, yeah, so it, it's confusing. It's, it's incredibly frustrating because, I mean, I think most authors go through this, but there's it's just these different levels, and if you're James Patterson, your book's everywhere and forever, and, and if you're me, you know, you 
you go to a bookstore and they have one copy. <laughs> uh, not all of them. Like the Fireside in uh, Palmer ordered, they said they ordered a pallet of my books, and, and uh, it, it's hard to figure, you know, how it sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. And, and um, yeah, it's almost like um, I've said about other things. When I make a thread, I, I know how to do it. And, and then you bump into these things like um, promoting your book where it's all blurry and you never know if it's working or not. And, yeah. So have the questions about your life and what it means to live off-grid changed in the more than 15 years since your first book? Um, you know, I, I live in the city now, but I have lived off-grid with two little kids. It was fantastic, but it was also really hard, as you know. Everything from washing your clothes to frying an egg is labor-intensive. Do people have a more romanticized and less realistic view on what that requires now as what you may have heard in the past, or is it about the same? Yeah, um, that's interesting. When I went to Montana, my first reading was in Missoula, and that's been the best part about traveling is meeting old friends. But um, one of the heroes of mine that I've never met, Martha Scanlon, a musician, showed up at my reading, and and she uh, complimented me on uh, just how I made uh, climate change uh, real instead of this sort of a... Uh, subject that's out there and uh and um i guess i found that to be my travels to the states is, uh especially climate change it's felt like it's it's been an uphill battle uh describing all the change here and and um and then trying to get uh, people to notice and 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 uh, come around to the concepts and um <clears throat> so some of that excuse me um some of that's just uh uh, feels a little, a uh, little easier in that subject, I guess. Now, but then back to you know living off the grid. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, uh, maddening parts of that to me nowadays. We for 27 years, uh, I used a couple of big batteries. My brother founded the dump for hooked up to a solar panel up, up river there, and never thought anything about it. And now every time I buy something that's so complicated and it, rising a battery or doesn't do this or that. And so I'm finding that uh, uh, <laughs> we haven't progressed too, too far. We just make things more complicated. <laughs> I have an email from Sue who says, Our Fairbanks group, AAH, Aging at Home, recently had Nick Jans give a talk on his writing, especially A Wolf Called Romeo. Nick mentioned Seth and his book, Ordinary Wolves, as a must-read. Sue says, I have ordered the book. I haven't received it yet, but I'm anxious to get it. I have had seen the title before, but having Nick Jans promote it as a great book, I knew I had to read it. So um, you are getting some some notice and good promotion, Seth. Um, Barbara, I have a quick question for you. We only have a couple of minutes left. Do you see areas of opportunity that you'd like to see some Alaska authors take on, whether that's a historical piece that deserves exploration or biographies that should be written? Anything quickly that you see there? Oh, my gosh, that's such a hard question. I think people are really doing it already. Um, there's, uh, there is so much good, in-depth writing happening, um, and I think they're taking on the big issues. I think Seth's book is an excellent example. Um, uh, a lot of what's being written now is, is 
you know, addressing a lot of the things that, that face us um, mm. as a state and as a country. So I think I think there's fertile ground and it's being um, it, it's people are out there pursuing it. And I think it's it's terrific. And we're very fortunate. I just feel tremendously fortunate that there are voices like Seth's and Tom's, Kazaya's and all the very Don Reardon's, all the um, and all the indigenous writers writing now, right. Ernestine Hayes, Ian Faith Prescott. Um, I, I just think we're very fortunate that we have an environment that fosters that, and I think whatever we can do to keep it going is, is a good thing. Um, and anyone interested in following what we do, uh, we do. you can join us at our website at 49writers.org, and we do publish a weekly newsletter where we try to get the announcements out about um, literary events in the state and all try right. to support writers. Okay, thank you so much. And Seth, in our final minute here, um, on your final page of your book, you wrote, there's something about food from the land that your hands gathered or hunted or grew, similar to a skin you've tanned, something beyond physical sustenance. Of course, some of us know that satisfaction, especially Alaskans, from the work that is part of putting your own food away, but fewer and fewer people do. How important do you think that connection is for people to be able to understand why we need to stop the loss of wild places and help protect water and land? Can someone who only knows of food that comes from a store shelf really care and understand this? Oh, wow, you give me one minute to answer that one, huh, Lori? Yeah, actually less than a minute, sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, it's nerve-wracking to get too far away from your food, especially me, and, and not where I know where it's coming from. And I'm allergic to a lot of things, so I don't trust, uh, you know, chemical food and stuff like that. But I suspect in the years uh, coming our way, we're, we're all going to have reason to uh, to want to know how to find food and what we can eat close to home. So it's important It's just whether people will realize that or not. It is. And thank you. That was so succinct. Thank you so much, my friend, Seth Kantner. His new book is called A Thousand Trails Home, Living with Caribou. It is beautifully, it's full of beautiful photography of Seth's and also his writing. Also, thanks to Barbara Hood with 49 Writers, suggesting other Alaska authors Thanks to our engineer, Tobin Shelby, our producer, Adlin Baxter, and on the phones today, Kavitha George. I'm Lori Townsend. Have a great holiday weekend. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.